We all have questions. I, I know there are different times in my life as I read, as I face different things, that I'll have different questions. Um, I don't think we'll ever have all the answers till we get to, to heaven. Uh, we all know of people who are struggling with their faith. They have questions with no answers. We know of people who have rejected or are rejecting because of questions with no answers. And so this is a, a important issue. You know, what, we'll, what we do once a year, I, I suppose, is we have a time where, where weeks previous, the congregation has had opportunity to submit questions. And then now today, Mike and I will give it our best shot at some of the ones that came through. We had a lot come through, so we're not able to address them all. Obviously, if your question was not addressed, please don't feel bad. Uh, you can just email us. We'll be, uh, we'd love to to explore that explore that with you so we got a handful of questions so we're just going to jump right in um i'll take the first one mike oh i'm supposed to introduce you aren't i mike said don't forget to introduce me because some people don't know who i am so all right all right this is this is this is the honorable michael kazarowski reverend not yet not yet a reverend but mike's been our youth pastor for Five years. Five years. He's been a student. And the average student pastor, Mike, you'll correct me. At one point, it was 18 months. Yeah, something like that. (laughs) And so Mike has got some staying power. And if you've had kids in the program, you're very, very grateful for for Mike. Um, So Mike and I are going to give it a shot. Let me jump in on this first question, though, Mike. It says, why are today's preachers shy about preaching and teaching Bible prophecy? Also, where are we in the prophetic timeline? Now, if you're, if you're younger, let me give you some history here. And I, I don't know the individual where the question came from, but 45 years ago, if you were my age, or a little bit older, you remember Hal Lindsey's late, great planet Earth. It was huge. It was just huge. And he had, we went to the theater and you saw the movies and, and he, he made the, uh, uh, scorpions, I think, or the locusts in the book of Revelation, a plague into like Apache helicopters. You know, it was just, it was just, the, the end is right now. It's gonna be really soon. And so everybody was hyped. You saw the movie, A Thief in the Night. It was a great, that was a great movie. You know, I wish we'd all been ready. I don't know if you, you've seen that, but it changed me. It was a gr- great movie. We had prophecy conferences on a regular basis, it seemed. I mean, ev- not just fringe groups. I mean, there was, you know, John Wolverd from Dallas Seminary, and you had Jack Van Empey and Pat Robertson. I mean, everybody from all flavors had prophecy conferences going on. We were sure that the end was soon. It was really soon. And so their question is, it seems, how come we don't have the prophecy conferences today or not a whole lot of teaching on it. A couple different things, and I've got no surveys, just off the top of my head. A lot of the pastors who are pastors today, um, us older guys, uh, were part of that Hell Lindsay uh, deal. And it maybe there's some disillusionment because we were hyped up tons. He's coming back, man, soon. He's going to be really soon. It's going to be really, really, really soon. And we were all waiting. And it wasn't Christ's timetable. And we told everybody. And so everyone's saying, yeah, where is he? I think part of it is is uh, not wanting to be associated with the, the, the Herald Camping type group. And there's lots of folk every couple of years. You see this in the headlines. Someone, someone prophesied when Christ is going to return and sell all your stuff. And so much so that in the media, someone who's Christian talking about the end times is kind of a mockery. So kind of probably pulling back from that a little bit. 
I think uh, a lot of it, though, is just to bring some balance to Scripture. Lots of prophecy conferences when I was a kid. I don't remember. There may have been some. I don't remember a single Psalms conference or a how to deal with life and suffering conference or a life of Christ conference. Or We kind of picked one thing in Scripture and made a big deal about it. So I think we're trying to bring a little more balance here. Five years ago, I think it was, we did a series Sunday morning, Tomorrowland, we called it, from Daniel 7 through 12. It's all end time stuff. Three years ago, we did the Bema, four-week series on the Bema, end time stuff. Last year, we did two weeks on the Bema. So we're, we're, we're uh, shooting at it and trying to hit it, um, but not overemphasizing. Now, let me um, answer the second part of the question, though, and that is, where are we in the prophetic timeline? So let me give you a kind of a 30,000-foot view of, of end-time stuff. Um, the next thing on the prophetic timetable, my understanding, is the rapture of, of the church. I think we've got a slide on this. The rapture of the church is when Christ comes back for his church. Jesus said, right, I'm going to go away, but don't worry because I'm coming back to get you. This is when that happens. This is not referred to as the second coming. Some Christians get mixed up with that. First uh, Thessalonians, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and the voice of an archangel, and the trump of God. Then the dead in Christ will be raised first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with the Lord and be with him in the air and will never be separated from him again. So when Christ returns, uh, all of those who have died in Christ, the Christians since the church began, are resurrected. Uh, all of us who are still alive when Christ comes, our bodies are changed, glorious, and, and we are uh, with him. Next thing is the, the Bema seat. What are we doing with him? Well, that's the Bema seat. If you remember, it's, it's the judgment seat of Christ where Christians are judged not on their sins, but on their works. What have we done for Christ? Uh, Revelation refers to part of this is the marriage supper of the, the lamb. That's what's going on in heaven. Now, what's going on on earth? Because not everybody is is raptured up, right? What's going on on earth? Well, Revelation's going to refer to that as the Great Tribulation. Uh, Jeremiah 30 refers to it as the time of Jacob's distress. First three and a half years of the Great Tribulation is actually pretty pretty nice. It's it's a it's a cakewalk. Everyone is is in on this one, but the second three and a half years is horrific. If you are a believer, it's like what ISIS had going on in the Middle East. Worldwide, global, it's 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 a it's a worldwide uh, horrific um, antichrist uh, gaining all kinds of power. After the, the the tribulation, the end of seven years, this is the second coming of Christ. Christ returns and he brings all the the saints in heaven with him. Uh, Armageddon transpires here, the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, Jesus, of course, wins. Satan is thrown into hell for 1,000 years. Satan, demon, all the, the followers of, of Satan, demons in hell for 1,000 years. So on this earth, we've got no Satan like Gar- Garden of Eden where we could blame it on Satan. He's not there. So you, you would think that everybody's going to be fine because for 1,000 years, Jesus is going to lead his kingdom on the earth, bringing the people from heaven as well as the folk that were still on the earth when he came back. But some of the folk on the earth don't submit to him. It gets kind of ugly, and at the end of that thousand years, Satan is loosed, major rebellion, but it's squashed immediately. Mm-hmm. And then the uh, new heavens, new earth, it's Revelation 21, 22, it's the end. It's, it's eternity. Where are we in the timeline? Well, here, here's where, where we, 
We are. When Christ left, he said, I'm coming back one day. I'll come and get you one day. Okay, rapture of the church. There's a gap between those two. We are right there. Jesus could come back any day. He could come back today. There's nothing that has to happen. There's no temple that's got to be rebuilt. There's nothing that has to happen before he can come back. The return of Christ is imminent. He can come back any day. It may not be, though, for like 500 years. or long. We don't know. I mean, Matthew 24, he says this. But concerning that day and hour, Jesus is talking, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. So folk who try to set dates and times, Jesus is saying, don't go down that road. It's, it's not for us to know. It's interesting, whenever the end time stuff is talked about in Scripture, it's never to you know satisfy our curiosity. It's always to Christians who are being persecuted deeply saying, Hang on. It's the believer's hope. It's what we're to live for. It's to be our impetus for perseverance. And so, um, again, where we are in the timeline, Christ could return at any moment. Could be today. Uh, may not be for a long time, but Scripture's uh, real clear on it. Watch out. Watch out. Be alert. Don't get caught sleeping. Don't get mm-hmm. caught sleeping. Uh, so here's the question. Are you alert? Are you yeah. awake? This could be today. And I think the alertness isn't just for you to be prepared, but uh, that urgency to evangelize, oh, to share with yeah. people. I mean, it's it's more than just, I need to be ready, but uh, where's my sense of urgency to my non-believing friends and family? So while we got to be careful how much weight we put on the dates uh, and the times, there's always a sense of urgency uh, to, to share Christ that never goes away. It shouldn't go away. Uh, next question. How do we prove the accuracy of the Bible? Um, this question is actually very near and dear to my heart because I did, um, through a, a time in high school, went through a period of doubt, uh, and, and I looked into it, and there's a, there's a ton of things that we could look at, but the one thing I want to look at today it probably stuck out the most um, for, for me, um, and, and it's helpful, once again, in our evangelism. You know, We can share Scripture with our non-believing friends and family, but if they don't even adhere to the Bible as true, uh, it's almost like we have to take a step back and show them that this is something worth believing in, um, to show us that this is actually true events that actually happened. Um, and so it's helpful to, instead of you know starting a few steps ahead, take a step back and say, why should we even give the Bible the time of day? Um, and so there is a process that uh, historians will actually go through uh, to essentially validate and authenticate ancient documents. And they do this not just with the Bible, but with other works of antiquity. Um, and, and so it's important to note that we don't have the originals of any ancient documents. Um, you know, when Paul sat down, he wrote something out, um, and we don't have that copy. Um, we don't have the original. And the same goes with any ancient document. But what we do have is, obviously, we got it somehow. Somebody took that original work and they made a copy because they felt like it was important. And then somebody took that copy and they made a copy. And then that copy got another copy. And so we do have copies of copies of copies of copies of copies uh, of these original ancient works. And so what they'll look at when it comes to ancient documents is that they, they will look at how many how many copies do we have um, and our earliest copies, how close are they to the original writing um, that, we're, that we're taking this from? Uh, and so the more copies that we have, 
And the closer we get to the original writing, uh, the more reliable and accurate it is. Um, and so, for instance, I've got a slide for you, just a little graph. I thought this would be good for you just to see. I want to take you through some of um, works of antiquity. Plato, for instance, wrote between 427 and 347 BC. The earliest copy we have of Plato is 900 AD. It's a time span of like 1,200 years. And we only have seven copies. Um, Everybody looks at Plato and looks at it as reliable and accurate. Nobody questions Plato. Nobody looks at Plato and says, eh, that probably didn't happen. He probably didn't write this. This is a historically reliable and accurate um, author in Plato. Aristotle um, wrote between 384 and 322 BC. Our earliest copy is 1100 AD, so even a little bit longer, 1400 years. But we've got 49 copies, and that's impressive. That's really, really good. Homer's Iliad, when you you think about works of antiquity. This is one of the most historically accurate, reliable document that we have. Homer's Iliad, he wrote in 900 BC. Our earliest copy is actually 400 BC. So that gives us 500 years, uh, which is half the time of Plato and Aristotle. The more significant thing is we have 643 copies of this thing. That's remarkable. And so what we can do is this, these documents are what we call, they're 95% textually pure which means they've taken these 643 documents, they've cross-examined them, and 95% of all of these are saying the exact same thing. Uh, so this is like, we know uh, 95% sure that this is what Homer, uh, you know, this is, this is Iliad, this is what he wrote. And then we come to the New Testament. The New Testament was written uh, between 50 and 180. The entire New Testament was completed within, you know, one generation of, of Jesus coming, dying on the cross, rising from the grave, and ascending. Our earliest copy that we have, our earliest manuscript is 130 AD. So we're looking at like 80 years at the max. 80 years at the max, we have a copy, um, and there were still people in the generation that were around um, at the max. And if you look at, this is just Greek manuscripts in and of itself, we have over 5,600 different copies. It blows all the other ones away. It's 99.5% textually pure. You look at all of those 5,000 plus documents, and they're all saying the same thing. They're all saying the same thing, and that doesn't include, you know, our Latin manuscripts, our Syriac, our Coptic, our uh, Aramaic um, manuscripts. If you throw those in there, we've got 24,000-plus manuscripts. And so you look at this as a believer and say, okay, it's one thing to, if you believe it or not. That's a whole different conversation. I don't, you know, if you don't believe this, we can have a separate conversation. But you cannot look at this and say that it's inaccurate and unreliable because from, once again, a, a historical standpoint, the New Testament is the most reliable ancient document that we have uh, in our possession. And so it's one thing to believe it. It's a, it's a whole other thing. It's one thing to believe it. It's a whole other thing to say that this is, these events actually took place from eyewitnesses. And I think you mentioned this several years ago on Easter, Mark, how our faith is not built on, a, um, on what Jesus taught. It's based on what he did. And this is what the New Testament is. It is a historical document of eyewitnesses to say this, these are the events that transpired. And so you have to look at this as proof that these events actually happened, whether you believe it or not. Yeah. yeah. When I mentioned first hour, Mike, it was a, blew my mind years ago. I went to the Oriental Institute Museum. It's on the campus of the University of Chicago. It's one of the top Palestinian 
archaeology uh, departments, universities in, in America, and uh, went through their, 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 their tour, a fascinating tour. Uh, gal who gave us the tour, definitely not a believer, definitely not a, be- a believer uh, in the supernatural, but she was a believer in the Bible. Mm-hmm. She said uh, historically, she was Old Testament stuff, but she said historically, the Bible has never been proven wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's incredibly accurate historically. There have been times when other things have challenged and archaeologists have gone the other way and just have to come back. It was, it was fascinating to yeah. listen to this gal talk about how, of course, the, of course, the supernatural didn't happen. Got that. But everything else, historically, <laughs> yeah. it was very true. Yeah. So it was uh, a lot of evidences mm-hmm. for, for the word of God. Good, good. Um, this is a tough one, actually. It says, Pastor Mark preached about divine election, saying that both God's sovereignty and human agency are at work. John MacArthur says that we're so evil that we cannot choose God. God chooses us. And so here's the question. Does free will even exist? I've witnessed to my spouse for many years. They're not a believer. Apparently, my witness means nothing if God doesn't choose him. Um, this obviously very difficult question, and I, I, I spent more time on this and wrestling with this one than any all the other ones combined, um, because this this runs on two rails, one rail academic biblical rail. I think this is that's very easy to answer. That was very easy to answer, but it runs on an emotional rail as well. If you have a loved one who has passed away and rejected Christ. Uh, if you have a spouse or a child or a parent or a friend that you love deeply and you've been praying for and you've been witnessing for and they're rejecting Christ, is it because God did not choose them? I mean, this is a very emotional, very, very painful, confusing sort of, of issue. So I'm going to, I got to know, I'm answering, going to answer her question according to the context of that message. If you didn't get to hear that message, it's dated April 15th. You need to hear. You can get online and you can listen for free. Uh, April 15th, a very important message. So I'm going to answer in that context. Also, you need to know as a pastor, I got a shepherd's heart, and there's nothing more I want to do than just say stuff that makes people feel good and comforted. Uh, And yet, you know, I've got a responsibility to the word of God, what does God's word say? And you want that. And so that's where we've, we've got to go. So her, her question, do, does free will exist? Does free will exist? And, of course, the answer to that question is yes and no, right? We, 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 if you think this was yes and no, uh, I got up this morning. I could put on whatever I wanted to put on out of what was in my closet or in my drawers. I could not put on an Armani suit if I, I didn't, was not free to put on an Armani suit this morning because I didn't own one. I could eat for breakfast whatever I wanted to, according to what was in our fridge or in the pantry. I could not eat whatever I wanted to. I wanted pheasant under glass. You know what? It wasn't a- available. So I ate what you ate. Uh, I am not free to fly like a bird. I wish I was. I think that would be kind of fun. I am not free to be the president of Harvard. I am not free to come up with a run, a winning time in the Boston Marathon. I am not, uh, name something. There's just, when you start looking at things you're not free to do, you know, that circle of what we're free to do is, is kind of small. And so here's the question, and this is the key theological question. This, this, her question is getting at, and that's this. In my circle of freedom, 
Am I free to choose God all by myself? That's a, that's a, that's a, don't, don't miss any of the pieces of that. Am I free to choose God on my own? Romans 3 says that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And so you've got this God and man working together. Now, what we've got, of course, in Scripture is, is you've got both things at work. You've got the, the, the idea that I choose. It's all, choose you this day who you will serve and appeals to, to, to our will all over the place. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And how often I would have gathered you under my wings like a hen doth through brood. But you were unwilling. I mean, it's all over the place, right? We choose. Likewise, you get Acts 13, 48. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. You get Ephesians 1, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. You get Romans 9, 10, and 11, where God chose us, and on and on and on and on, married to scriptures. And we just have a hard time putting these together. This is, this is what I know. Do I understand all this? No, no, no. But this is what I know. When you get to heaven, every single person in heaven, every single one will have been chosen by God. When you get to heaven, every single person in heaven will have exercised their own free will to choose Jesus as their Savior, every single one. And so you can't, these are, these are opposite sides of the same coin. And when we try to tear them apart, that's when we get ourselves into a big old mess. We got to keep in mind, yes, they are both at work. I don't understand it, but they're both at work. And if you think this through deep enough, and we're getting some deep stuff here, but it can be no other way. Uh, if God, let's just say for a minute that God didn't choose anybody, that God just chose anybody who chose him. He didn't, really didn't choose anybody. We're the ones making the, the decision with that. Um, that doesn't get God off the hook. We've got somebody who's an unbeliever, and so we pray to God. First of all, we ought not to pray to God to help. If he can do nothing about it, then why, why pray to him about it? Uh, but uh, still, let me give you, let me give you this, this illustration. guy by the name of Nabil Qureshi. He's, he's gone now, but Nabil grew up in a, a very orthodox Muslim home. Uh, very loving, good, solid uh, home. Um, very, 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 very Muslim. Nabil, as he grew up, He's got this book out, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. If you haven't read that book, you need to read that book. Even if you're not a reader, that book is, is phenomenal. Seeking Jesus, finding, or Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. I think it started in junior high. Uh, different people came across his path who knew Jesus and would introduce him, talk to him about Jesus. And he had his arguments and he would push back, but he... Notice that they cared for him or that they were bold about it throughout his life. And this is like a 10-year, uh, decade-long search here. He wasn't necessarily searching for Jesus, but, but throughout that time, people were plugging into his life. I mean, big-name folk, Gary Habermas, you might not know him, but he's like a, a Josh McDowell guy. It just kind of happens across this guy's path. They're answering his questions. They're answering his, uh, his obstacles to faith. They're helping him understand the differences in, in, the, in the faith. And he's going through this major wrestling match. At the end of 10 years, he comes to know Christ, right? Now, did he happen amongst all those people by accident, do you think? 
or maybe God brought them across his path. If God did bring them across his path, you have to ask yourself then, how come God doesn't do that for every Muslim, Hindu, atheist, agnostic? God doesn't do that for everybody. What about the, the person that maybe only gets one witness? Uh, and even that one is a little bit shallow. What if this one Muslim person just meets a Christian who's an idiot Christian and, and turns them off? What, what about the people who live in places where no one shares with them or they don't hear? And, and could not God have brought uh, someone across your loved person's, uh, loved one's path who had an ability to communicate the gospel? I and mean, let's say you prayed for them and you witnessed to them for 40 years and then they die rejecting Christ. Could not God have brought someone, though, across their path who could share the gospel with them? Could not God have softened their heart? Could not God have kept that bad thing from happening to them that jaded them? Could not God have had worked in such a way? You would say, well, yeah, I think so, but he didn't. So just by saying God doesn't choose, it doesn't get him off the, the, the hook. Do I understand all this? No, but I know it's, it's incredibly, uh, like the rest of the doctrines in Scripture, it's very comforting. Um, if I shared with my love when I prayed with them, and you need to know I've got people in my extended family who don't know Christ. I, I, I prayed and I fasted. I'm still there. I'm still, so I know some of that pain. But you, you, you spend forever talking with them, and they, 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 they don't. Here's how it can be a comfort. If they never accept Christ, I might be thinking, I shared wrong, or I pushed too hard, drove them away, or I didn't push hard enough, or I didn't have the right answers. They had these questions, and they were good questions, and I should have researched, and I didn't research. I should have read something that tells me how I can share with this person. I should have lived it better in front of them because, oh, I lost my temper, and there were times I just didn't care, and I, I, I'm sure that that's what turned them off. And, and we, they're in hell today because somehow I did it wrong. That is a way you cannot bear, and you're not supposed to bear that. We have our responsibility in sharing our, our faith, but the Holy Spirit, it's, it's, it's spiritual birth. He brings it about. And so we we got to make sure and not wear that. We evangelize because we've been commanded to. We, we evangelize because we model our Jesus, right? That's what his whole life was about. We we. we evangelize because we love him so much that everybody needs to know this. This is such a great news. We evangelize because we care for this other person and we should be praying for him and and sharing with them and crying over them. That's all right. But after it's all said and done, you just got to know you're not God. You can't take on the, I blew it and I failed. And that's why all these different people are, are in hell. It's a mystery. I know it's a mystery, but it's, uh, a doctrine like the rest of the doctrines in Scripture that are meant to, to comfort. And when you think it through, it's, I'm very grateful. The salvation of the world is in my God's hands and not my hands. Ultimately, here's the deal. We can trust him. He's good. He's good. We can trust him with our, our, our loved ones. We never know, ultimately, what kind of decision they make or don't make. That's between them and God. We've got our responsibility, but uh, our God's good. Yeah. Our God's good. I've got a lighthearted question after that one. That's good. I think we need need one, Mike. That's all right. It was intense. Um, Last week, 
I, when I preached, I shared a story uh, during my sermon about um, when um, my wife and I took our infant daughter to Independence Day right, to see the fireworks, and then a giant storm hit, and we, we made a run for it, and so I took Ella and, and put her in the stroller, and I just I booked it, right? I made a run for it. Well, after my sermon last week, I had about eight people come up to me and ask me, what happened to your wife? <laughs> And I know, I know how this looks. <laughs> I know that it looks like I left her high and drier, in this case, very, very wet. Um, and that's exactly what happened. Um, in my defense, though, uh, we were with a group of people. I didn't leave her stranded completely. Um, and, and she was yelling at me, take the baby and go, just go. And so I promise you all that I am not a neglectful husband, um, at least in that instance. Uh, there was no neglect. So um, I got another question. I'm going to keep going. Um, God created a very big universe. Uh, is there is there a chance He created other intelligent beings like humans? Um, that's given that we can find intelligent beings here on Earth. Um, <laughs> you laugh because it's true. Um, men, you know, we've we've sent space crafts to nearly every planet in our solar system. Um, we have sent multiple landers uh, to Mars to, to dig up uh, the, the, the Martian soil. We did it in 76. We did it again in 97. Um, and the results have always been the same. They have never, they have never come across any kind of life. Um, they've looked at our solar system and they've studied even. Um, and they've determined that really Mars and one of the moons of Jupiter are the only ones that even have the potential. Um, a very, very small possibility, but even the potential to, to carry life let alone intelligent life. Um, whereas on Earth, if you actually dig in the most barren of our land, in the most barren of desert or in Antarctica, um, while there's no life or intelligent life, they'll actually still find microorganisms. And so there's still life even on the most barren parts uh, of Earth. And so while, while um, it really speaks to just the uniqueness of Earth, if you ever think about just how unique Earth is that, that we have life, and it will really blow your mind. You know, the Earth's position in the solar system from our sun is it's like we're a Goldilocks planet. It's just right. It's just right, the distance from the sun. Um, the, the tilt and rotation period is just right. There are fine-tuned aspects of Earth's atmosphere that are just right. We're talking like gravitational force is just right. The amount of carbon dioxide and oxygen is just right. The amount of water vapor is just right. The amount of ozone is just right. Um, and so there's all of these things at play here, and for whatever reason, Earth meets all of these scenarios that are just right. And there's this, um, there's an astronomer, Hugh, Hugh Ross, who actually lists out 55 different criteria at least, and there may be more, 55 criteria at least that a planet, um, that a planet has to meet in order to, in order to sustain life. Um, and he actually ran the numbers on what are the chances there's a, there's a planet um, not including Earth, just a planet in general, having all of these 55 criteria. Um, it's determined and it's um, known that as far as the amount of planets that exist in our universe is about 10 to the 22nd power. 
uh, trillions, right? 10 to the 22nd power is how many planets exist in probably in our universe. Um, The chances of one of those planets meeting all of these criteria to even possibly sustain life is one out of every 10 to the 69th power. Uh, the chances of life existing on any planet in our galaxy, it is highly unlikely that life uh, exists, uh, just in general. It just, it's not supposed to happen, but here we are. And so this really speaks to, once again, this points to something greater. This points to the fact that we're not an accident, that this couldn't have just, that it could have just happened. Some of these people that, that believe that, that we are an accident, that this happened by chance, they have more faith than I do. Right? They, they've got to have a, a, a bigger faith to believe in what they believe in than, than what I believe in. And um, it just points that there's a creator. Right? There's, a, there's an atheist uh, physicist, Fred Hoyle. And this is a, just a powerful quote. Keep in mind, he's not a believer. He says this, A common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics. The number one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. What he's saying is, I look, I observe the world around me, and it looks like there is some kind of outside force monkeying with the physics to make this just perfect. What he's experienced, and he's actually gone on to say, when he looks at the evidence, he's gone on to say that nothing shakes the core of my atheism more than this discovery right? More than these evidences, more than this observation. What, what Fred Hoyle is experiencing is general revelation. This is general revelation. Romans 1, 19 through 20. This is what it says. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been, been made. What Paul is saying is that we know of God's eternal power. We know of his divine nature. We know of his invisible attributes because of what he has created. Now, now Fred Hoyle rejects this notion that there's a creator, that there's a God. But what he's experiencing, you know, his experience speaks differently than what he says. He's saying, I don't believe there's a creator, but boy, does there sure feel like one. And this is just how unique it is. And so the fact that there probably aren't, I would be willing to say there aren't other intelligent beings um, out there somewhere, it just speaks to the magnificent, just the magnificent power of Jesus in in, in creating everything and just the, the, the mighty power of God. And not just the, the transcendent mighty power of God, but the, the, the fact that he's an imminent God and that he's involved in our lives and he has a purpose for our lives. Um, and, and so are there intelligent beings like humans out there? Probably not. Uh, but boy, does that speak to God's intentionality of, of, of his character. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. Um, let's uh, close down with, with, with this one. Question is help. Don't you love it? I have tried to read the Bible, but seem to get lost and soon lose interest. I know that I'm supposed to love the Bible, and I want to. I know the Bible is supposed to change my life, but I must be doing something wrong. How does one read the Bible? What a great question. It's just an incredible question. And the first thing, of course, you need is desire, and it sounds like they've got it. If you think the Bible is going to be like, you know, 
peanut butter M&Ms where it's just it's so, so doggone good. You just pick it up, you just read a verse, and it's like, oh, man, I've got to have another. Oh, man, this is just... <laughs> I don't want to say the Bible's like broccoli, okay, or Brussels sprouts or something. <laughs> However, probably not like the peanut M&M's thing. So you need the desire. Sounds like this person's got the desire. Second thing you need is a plan. Uh, Paul says, train yourself to be godly. We, if you have any kind of uh, retirement funding, then you have had a plan. You didn't helter-skelter, just kind of, well, whenever something's that, whenever I have a few extra bucks, I'll throw it at it. You've got a, a plan. If you're going to go serious with diet, you've got a plan. If you're going to go serious with working out, you've got some sort of a plan. Paul says, have one for your spiritual growth, for your Bible reading. Now, I want to show you a quick video, and then we'll talk about a plan, okay? Let's check this out. Tim Mackey is, is over uh, the Bible Project. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Google it. It's phenomenal uh, videos on, on Scripture. Uh, of course, we know, know Francis Chan, but Francis Chan, Tim Mackey have taken this burden that's on their heart of developing a, a plan to help us read and understand, not just read the words, but understand Scripture. So they... If, you can get an app in the App Store, read Scripture, okay? Read Scripture. Check it out online, Google, YouTube, um, read Scripture. You'll have to look a little bit, but not that much. It's right near the top. 
Um, the plan is this, uh, 15 to 20 minutes a day. That's it. You, you read the portion that they have listed out. Then um, they have videos in, uh, videos through, throughout this thing, throughout the whole, whole year, that help explain how what you're reading fits into the whole picture of what God is saying. Uh, different videos on understanding some of the hard stuff and some of the, the terms and what does this mean. Excellent, just excellent. Also in the reading, there is a psalm every day. And this is what they want you to do. They, they want you to pray through. They lead you, teach you how to pray through the psalms. Because they don't want you just reading stuff. They want you interacting with, with the God of the Bible. And so when you're doing this, if you go through the whole uh, uh, system, you, you, you do this all, all year, you will have prayed through every single psalm two times. Not to mention you've read through all of Scripture and you've seen the, the, the video, which is very entertaining, but very knowledgeable to, to get you there. I promise you this. If you want to understand Scripture and you want to know the God of Scripture, if you download this app, you commit to it, you do it with a good heart, I promise you, you'll be farther ahead at the end of this year than you will now. Now, here's, here's the deal with this. So, sometimes, especially if we're reading through the first time, it is an ancient book, like uh, Tim Mackey said. It's an ancient book, so there's some cultural stuff we don't get, we don't understand, and so we start to read through it, and we go, eh, so we, and we dump it. But if we stick, and if you continue on, then I promise you, the second time through, you're going to get a little bit more. Third time through, a little bit more. Fourth time through, you're starting to see how stuff fits together. Uh, this is not microwave. This is crockpot, right? And so by the time you have gone through it multiple times, you are understanding, you are seeing, you are knowing, you are trusting in God deeper. You're seeing his plan. You're, you're realizing what he's doing. And you're realizing what he's doing in your life. And suddenly you find out, you wake up one day and you see how the God, the God's word is, is being meshed into who you are. If you're serious about reading scripture, then you, you, you got to have a plan. You get the desire, you get the plan. And this is, this is a good one. Amidst all that, let me encourage you this. Be, find a time and, and put barbed wire around that time. Uh, we're going to be tired. You're going to be sick. You're going to have other stuff going on. It doesn't matter. Stick to the time. Be consistent. Because if you if you if I decide to go on a diet, I'm gonna diet one day a week. You know, the rest of the day I'm gonna be junk food straight up. But one day I'm gonna die. Well, you know what? It's not gonna really matter, will it? If I'm gonna exercise, I'm just gonna exercise one time a week. And it, well, that's great, good. I guess it's a start, but it's not gonna make any kind of a difference. Consistency with these these things make it make it's what makes the difference is we are consistently in God's word, we meet with him. He changes us. He changes us. So here's the deal. Let's not wait till January to start this. Oh, yeah, I'll start that plan in January. No, 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 no. We're going to start that plan June 1, man. Let's, let's start the plan now. We're going to, so one year from now, we will have gone through scripture. We will have gone through the commentary. We will pray through. Can you imagine? I love Francis's last question there. Can you imagine? What the church would be like if everybody who comes has been in his word every day consistently throughout the week, and then they come together. Can you imagine we've been doing that for months and months and months and months and months? What might God do with us? Who might we be? What a powerful, powerful thought. Um, Read scripture. It's a good app. app. To reiterate, the key here is consistency and longevity. 
consistency and longevity and find a plan that works for you. Set, set the plan. Make sure that it works for you. This is one of those instances that it can work for you. Tell us your wake machine story, buddy. Yeah, so um, several years ago, um, I go into a um, Dick's Sporting Goods, and I'm looking specifically for an exercise machine to help me lose weight. And I think there's got to be one here that's better than the other. Like, like which one is going to help me lose the weight the best? And uh, I go to the guy, and I ask him, hey, I'm trying to lose weight. Which machine is going to help me do that the most? And I, I was expecting him to come out with all these facts and probably upsell me to the most expensive machine and uh, make a point of this one's going to really help you burn the calories. And I was shocked by his answer. He just looks at me uh, quite plainly and says, find the one that you're going to keep doing. Find the one that you're going to keep doing. And because your consistency and your longevity in this is going to be is the, the formula for success when you lose weight. And I think the same is true in our, in our devotional time. Find the plan that, that you're going to keep doing. Find the one that is going to help you stay consistent, that's going to help you stay with it, longevity. You're going to fall off the horse. Life happens. When you fall off the horse, you get back on the horse and you keep going. Find the plan that works for you. So... All that to say, judging by the scale this morning, I picked the wrong exercise machine. <laughs> yes, but if you fall off the horse, man, <laughs> get back on. Get back on. <laughs> That's right. That's it. Mike, will you, will you pray for us? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that while there are many things that are a mystery to us, um, there is nothing that is a mystery to you, Lord. Um, you know all things, and I pray, Father, that as uh, we do work out our salvation um, and our faith, that uh, you would be known and you would give us the answers, Lord, and the answers that you do withhold. I pray, Father, that we would experience your grace that we need uh, to continue moving on, Lord. Uh, let us depend on you, trust in you. Uh, in your almighty ways, Father. Um, even as we uh, close in worship, Father, um, I, I pray for our offering this morning. Uh, I pray that these finances would be given to make you known, uh, Lord, and, and make these answers known to people of, of your greatness, your goodness, uh, your salvation, Father. Uh, we praise you for how good you are to us when we don't deserve it, Lord. And in your holy name I pray, amen.